You are listening to Resurrection Indiana. To find out more about our meeting times and location, check us out on Facebook or Instagram, or visit our website at resurrectionindiana.org. Count it all joy, my brothers, when, when you meet trials of various kinds. I think there's another translation that just says, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. <laughs> In many ways, this is an encouragement to us, and yet, if you are someone who is suffering, if you are struggling, if you are discouraged, if you are in the midst of a trial, this is probably not what you want to hear. I remember a professor whose wife had been diagnosed with and was being treated for cancer. And this professor was fairly well known, and so consequently, to his office fairly regularly during this time as he continued his work, as he continued to teach his classes. But a number of pastors and friends would stop by to encourage him, to comfort him, and to pray with him and for him. Sometimes whether they knew him personally or not. And in one instance, a pastor came to visit and prayed for this professor along the lines of James 1. Asking that God would be working through these circumstances, through this professor's wife's cancer. That he would be working faith, endurance, and that he would bring about maturity and completeness for this professor and his wife. When he was done and he said amen, the professor responded, you know, God is working all of those things in me. I certainly believe that he is. But right now, I want my wife. And I did not appreciate your prayer. He was right. What James has to say to us is absolutely true. But it is probably not the sort of passage that you ought to use to encourage people when they are in the midst of suffering. Because while it's true, it is difficult and it suggests that we need to be broken down to grow in faith. And of course, we'll go into that more here as we go along. This is a passage actually that we need to wrestle with when you're not in the middle of trials. This is a passage you need to wrestle with so that you might be prepared when you are to navigate through them. And it's a passage that you need even when you're on the other side to help you understand what God is doing. Sometimes, maybe you do need this passage during your trial to help you know what to do, but that's different and coming to this passage in hopes of finding encouragement and comfort. God does desire to grow our faith. He does desire to draw us close to him. <coughs> but we need to see how he does this. And so we want to look at today in these 10 verses. What is God doing? What is it that we need 
And where are we going? Where is God taking us through this? So the first couple of verses here, verses 2 through 4, he begins with, Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. And then he says, Let steadfast have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What is God doing? When Jesus tells us to count it all joy when we face trials, James tells us this. We might say that Jesus would say the same thing. But he's not telling us just to be happy. He's not telling us to put it on a brave face or to see these as an easy thing. He is telling us that in the midst of whatever your trial is, in the midst of whatever suffering there is, that there is a purpose. But what does James have in mind? Poverty, persecution. I mean, those are things, sickness, illness. Maybe also loneliness, bereavement, disappointment. You know, all of those things. This is a pretty general instruction. But the purpose of trials or testing, and both of those are valid translations of the word that James uses, and so we'll kind of use both of them here. You can probably use whichever one is most helpful to you. It's more helpful to you think of being tested rather than simply going through trials. But whether it's through suffering, struggle, or just being challenged in some way, is that he says you would develop steadfastness, that you would develop endurance. Just think of the way an athlete builds up his body through training, that our faith grows and strengthens through being exercised. You know, when I was in high school, I ran cross-country, and a cross-country race is, is... Five kilometers, 3.1 miles. So, of course, we train by running 10 or 15 miles. Because if you could run 5 or 10 or 15 miles, you could do 3 miles pretty fast. As your endurance is increased, you become, of course, stronger. You become more grounded in the reality and the hope of the gospel. So you need to remember that there's a purpose to that training. There's a purpose to that testing and trial. A friend of mine once had been a Division I college football player. And after he graduated, maybe a year or two afterwards, you know, noticed that he was you know, no longer in the shape that he had been during college. And, and he decided that he needed to get back into shape. But what he knew was the kind of workouts that he had done in preparation for football season. So, so that's what he did. He began putting himself through the rigors of these workouts that were sort of akin to summer training camp. After he'd done that for a few days, he realized at one point, why in the world am I doing this? I'm not playing anymore. I'm not preparing for a game. This is nuts. The purpose matters. But if you are following Jesus, you need to recognize that God is pulling you somewhere. There is a purpose. Now, what kind of trials does James have in mind? I already mentioned a few things, things like sickness, poverty, loneliness, persecution. Basically, the kind of things that we would associate with adversity or, or suffering. But James actually doesn't just say adversity. 
The truth is that sometimes success is also a trial. You know, when we began planting Resurrection Indiana, when we moved here, we went to a church planter training. Carrie and I went to a conference. And one of the things that was mentioned during that conference was that church plants, church startups that are overfunded are actually more likely to fail. In other words, churches that are being started that have that have all of the funding that they need, they don't have to worry about they don't have to worry about money. You know, they don't have to they don't have to worry about those kind of things, fundraising and so forth. They're actually less likely to be successful. Now, of course, when I heard that, my immediate response was, I don't know, I'd like to chance it. <laughs> but the point is this, trials, whether by adversity or success, or success, are used to reveal our true character. And you can probably think of instances of people you've known and there are certainly public instances as well in which success reveals a person's true self every bit as much as suffering. So even though we use this passage and very often, I think rightly so, we associate this with the idea more of adversity and, and suffering and so forth. Success, prosperity, those can be trials as well. But there is a purpose to those trials. Just like that athlete in training, the endurance that is produced is not itself the goal. You know, like my friend that realized that he was not preparing for a football season anymore. The reason he had done this before was for a purpose, and that purpose didn't exist anymore. He didn't need to work out that hard. But yet if you follow Jesus, the goal... James tells us here is that we would be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, one way to think of this is maturity. That's maybe not quite right. The Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 5, Jesus says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. God is more than just mature. And it also means more than just what perfect expresses. We don't just mean that you become somebody who is without fault. The end of trials, the purpose, is that they would make us complete and whole. God is not just drawing us to himself. He is renewing you. He is preparing you for life with him. This is something that goes on throughout your life. The filmmaker Tyler Perry was out running one day and, and ran into an older woman on the trail, and he asked how she was doing, and she says, not bad for 79. And he stopped to talk to her for a few minutes, and at one point she said to him, young man, I've been through a lot. Lots of people give up, but trust in the Lord. He won't let you down. <coughs> And about that conversation, Perry said later, out here walking miles at 79 years old and spreading the love of God. Trials of all kinds are the primary way that God draws us to himself and that he teaches us to trust him. And they also reveal the nature of our faith. 
the way that we respond reveals the condition of our hearts. And consequently, that ability to consider it joy, that's not something that we can just resolve to do. It's not something that you can just will yourself to do. I'm going to consider it joy no matter what, which usually ends up being gritting your teeth. I'm going to consider it joy! (laughs) Which I don't think is what he means. Because being able to consider those trials joy comes out of where your heart is at. What is God doing? What do we need? James makes this shift here in verse 5. And all of a sudden he's been talking about trials and then he just sort of shifts and begins to talk about wisdom. Well, if any of you lacks wisdom, you think, I don't... And James kind of does this, by the way, so we'll be making sense of this as we go through the entire letter. But why does he do that? What does going through trials have to do with wisdom? Well, maybe we don't have to think very hard and think, well, probably a lot. Because trials test our faith and they build endurance, but we also need wisdom to navigate through them. You know, when you're struggling, when something unexpected comes into your life, suddenly you have to deal with something that you weren't planning on. How do you know how to respond? And here, James says that anyone who lacks wisdom should ask for it. Although he may as well say that, well, all of you should ask because all of you lack. (laughs) And he says that wisdom is freely given, and that should be an encouragement. That God promises that if you ask, he'll answer. That he's generous. That he doesn't discriminate, he doesn't show favoritism. We have to remember that God does not require what he does not also provide. If you are facing a trial, if you are facing something in your life in which wisdom is necessary, you can trust that God will provide it. Then there is a qualification here. When we ask, he says, you must not doubt. This has probably been largely misunderstood in a lot of ways. What we often take it to mean is that, well, if God doesn't answer, it's because you don't have enough faith. You need to believe harder. Or you need to have more faith. But in light of the whole of Scripture, that's probably not what James means. He gives this image here of a person who is being tossed by the waves or being double-minded, and that's helpful because he's asking us to ask with a singleness of intent. Another way to put it is that God requires spiritual integrity. What that means, it doesn't mean that you don't have a doubt-free faith, but it does mean that you have a faith that is facing toward God, however much you may stumble in that. That term double-minded literally means two faces, not two-faced, but two faces, facing in two directions at once. In other words, you are not just looking at God for help, but at the same time, you may be looking in other places at the same time. One scholar puts it this way, he says, The doubter does not pray to God with a consistency and sincerity of purpose. He is prey to the shifting winds of motive and desire. He wants wisdom from God one day, 
but he wants the wisdom of the world the next day. Let me put it another way. Let's take a family that is undergoing a great trial. There's difficulty or suffering. Let's say they've lost a child, maybe through an accident or illness, and well, how are the parents respond? And there's all sorts of questions in that that require wisdom. How do the husband and wife comfort each other while they are both in so much pain themselves? How will they help their other children? How will they continue with day-to-day life going to work and, and paying the bills? How will they pick up the pieces and regain some semblance of wholeness in their life again? Especially when it seems like that's impossible. You know, in situations like that, and I know that's fairly extreme, but it does happen, and there are other situations in which you might see the same dynamic, but often one of the parents in the family will simply withdraw. Withdraw from their friends, from the church, and from God. Maybe they throw themselves into other things. Other things that allow them to dull the pain that they feel, whether it's work or alcohol. Or maybe they just sink into a deep depression. And what's happening is that they are removing themselves from the roots and support that they need to get through. And so they might pray and ask for wisdom. And honestly, I don't really question whether they really mean it. But the reality is they don't really believe that God is there. And at the same time that they are asking for God to intervene and to be at work, they're running to to other places and other things, sometimes even more than they're running to God. And what's happened is that that trial has actually revealed the truth about their faith, that this is not a God that is big enough and I need something else. course that's easy to do I don't know how many people that I've known over the years that going through some sort of trial or some sort of difficulty withdraw from the community if they belong to a church for example and withdraw from that community and just say well I just need to take a break that's just too much usually when that happens they never come back You can't find God apart from the means of grace that he has given to us for for coming to him. Through relationships in the community of the church, through the sacraments, through the word, through the support that exists there. You need wisdom, and you need it most in the midst of trials. But when you go to God and ask, you need to ask because you are running to him at the same time. If you ask for God for wisdom on one day and ignore him the next, if you are facing in two directions, you can expect that you probably won't get the response that you want. And again, over the years, people that I've known that withdrawn that way, they're usually surprised. I don't understand why God doesn't hear me. I don't understand why I feel so distant. You need to be turning to Jesus. And yeah, sometimes that's hard. 
where are we going? What's the purpose in all this? What is God doing? Because then James makes another abrupt shift that maybe again makes a little sense. He draws this contrast between the poor and the rich. So first he said, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials. Then he, then he goes into this discussion about wisdom and hopefully you kind of see how that fits. But now he talks about being rich and poor. In the first place, he talks about the exalted poor, a lowly brother who boasts in his exaltation. This is someone who is low in this world. Maybe they're persecuted or simply suffering or they're living in poverty or, and yet they are exalted James says, because in Jesus, this person is a child of God. Regardless of their circumstances in this world, this person is adopted into God's family, that God is his father, Jesus is his brother. And that he's become royalty. He is a child of the king. And his hope is that in God's economy, He's not really poor at all. And one day that poverty, his circumstances that he exists in now will all be gone. And yet James also talks about the rich. He says the rich should boast in his humiliation. Is it humiliating to be rich? I don't think we usually think of it that way. But a rich person, somebody who is well off, who is secure, they may have everything in the eyes of the world. And yet one day that will all be gone as well. And he should boast in that. Well, why? Well, a couple of things. First of all, being poor can certainly be a trial. But as we've already said, so can being rich. So can success. Comfort and security often are greater dangers to faith than poverty. Sometimes one of the questions that comes up is, well, why does Christianity historically tend to attract people who are poor, people who are in need? I think there's a fairly straightforward answer to that. The gospel says that you are a person who deserves God's judgment, that you are separated from him, that you are in need, that you cannot save yourself. And somebody who is actually in need in the eyes of the world recognizes, yes, I'm a person in need. Whereas somebody who seemingly has everything together, who has all the comfort and security that the world can offer, I don't need God. In other words, sometimes actual poverty, actual suffering actually puts you more in touch with the reality of your condition in a way that success and prosperity actually insulates you from that condition. So consequently, comfort and security sometimes are greater <coughs> dangers to faith. And even more dangerous because we don't see them as dangerous. But the rich person one day He'll be free of those things, too. At the same time, a rich person is no better than a poor person. Both get into heaven the same way. Only because of Jesus. Now, that's why in the gospel, the apostle Paul tells us there is neither rich nor poor. You are all one in Christ. 
in the gospel, of course, is that we are all in spiritual poverty, that we're all broken and rebellious and we're prone to trust in ourselves and we're deserving of God's judgment because we are created by him and we're accountable to him. And there is not a person in the world who can claim they are good enough for God. The only way that we come to God is on the basis of what Jesus has done for us, that he's lived in your place, the life that God requires, and that he has died in your place, the death that you deserve. So the question, of course, is, is that true of you? Because if it is, you can trust that God will work in you to finish what he started. And ultimately, that's the point. Whether rich or poor in this world, in the end, the only thing left will be Jesus. And trials, whether suffering or prosperity, will reveal where your faith is. And so we're back around to the beginning where James started in this passage. Whenever we face trials, Jesus must be enough. Because what God is doing is pressing us forward and stripping away all the other things so that we will trust in him alone. One songwriter put it this way, that God shakes us forward and shakes us free. To run wild with the hope. Because that's the choice. In the end, you can have Jesus or you can have nothing. But if Jesus... There is a greater hope than anything the world can throw at you. So God desires to grow us in faith. He desires to draw us close to him. And we need to recognize that he does do this and how he does it. Because in the midst of whatever trial you face, and everybody does, especially if that trial is suffering, Again, not a great passage to share with somebody in the middle of it. Because sometimes the joy that James calls us to feels pretty joyless. But there's no way around it. You have to go through. But what can be shared is this. God is good he is working, always. He is working for your good because he loves you. Even in the midst of whatever you're facing. And that is something you can trust. Let me pray for us.